Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I'm one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. With me tonight is Gabby Martin and Thomas Harper, and we're going to talk about the sin in Chapter 3 of The Mandalorian. <laughs> Gabby and Thomas, how are you both doing tonight? I'm doing good. I've been avoiding the sin of talking spoilers about this episode for what 72 straight hours so this is my time to dump it all out there and i cannot wait uh, i i watched it at 4 a.m friday morning and because uh, i woke up like a kid eager christmas morning and it really reminded me of when i was a kid in the late 70s so i was super young but there were rare like marvel cartoons there was the thing cartoon which i know is like before you were both thought of um but I was four, so that's okay, too. Uh, and, like, I remember getting up super early in order to watch that, because I wanted to. It's the same feeling with Mandalorian. And now kids who don't have Saturday morning cartoons know what it's like to get up super early to watch something like we did in the olden days. So uh, I, I think that's one of the neat things about the weekly releases of The Mandalorian. Who knew that... I mean, think back any, literally a year ago even, or, or certainly five, ten years ago, that we would have, um, I mean, my Friday morning ritual is the exact same. I wake up at the crack of dawn and immediately run downstairs and uh, and turn this on to watch it. And I, if I told myself a year ago that that would be the case, I'd slap myself and be like, you're a liar from the future. <laughs> Gabby, do you have the same obsessive compulsive behavior that Thomas I and I? No, <laughs> I don't. I was just thinking this because I, I, I saw on Twitter that a lot of people are the same, that, you know, they just kind of run and go to watch it. I actually didn't watch it until Saturday night the first what, time. What is this self-control? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I, I want to savor it. I, I want to just let it sit there and then watch it and absorb it, so... Did, did you have a nervous tick or anything like that happening? Was no, it? No, I just distracted myself with other things and then, you know, sat down and watched it. And then of course now I've watched it like five times. So. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm like four or five, I lost count. It's, again, it's, I'm glad Deborah Chow got the Kenobi series after watching this masterpiece. So, yeah. uh, but we, we can get into the brilliant filmmaking after we talk about the law. So, <laughs> One issue that, that I identified, and you know, Gabby, you've done some research on this as well, is the issue of the client hiring other bounty hunters with a kill order, so arguably to pay them less mm -hmm. to go kill the child after the Mandalorian was retained. So a down payment had been made, made to the Mandalorian, so like they're engaged, there's, there's an actual contract. Uh, in the middle of, and he's in the middle of performance of it. Could you walk us through uh, what kind of tortious interference uh, with contract uh, issues that can come from the client putting out more bounty hunters to go out and kill the kid, mm -hmm. which would have a lower payout than the Mandalorian bringing the child in alive? Well, I think the question is whether there is tortious interference. So tortious interference is, is obviously a private um, tort action, um, which involves a intentional interference with 
um, where someone else damages a contractual or business relationship with a third party that causes act economic harm. So the question here would be whether there was a completed contract and whether there was a binding contract between the client and the Mandalorian or whether the what was really in place was an open offer that the client had merely made multiple open offers and that the only time the contract would become binding is when somebody came and finally performed on the contract so when it's you know i you know i will give you x amount to bring back my dog you can tell five people in the neighborhood i will give you hundred dollars if you find my dog none of them you know they're all going to go out and search for your dog the person you're going to pay the hundred dollars is the person who comes back with your dog and none of the other none of the four other people can bring an action against you because all they had was an offer there wasn't acceptance because there wasn't completed performance so i don't know if there was much tortious interference because you'd have to question what the intentional damage was done, which relationship was damaged or would be the subject of the suit, was there economic harm? I mean, yeah, the other bounty hunters missed out on the money, but that's not, you know, they didn't complete the performance, so therefore they're not necessarily harmed economically. So I think this is more in terms of a bid or, you know, multiple offers or an open offer that there, there's nothing really enforceable until somebody comes back with the package and the money is handed over. That's if, you know, say the Mandalorian had come back with the child and, you know, the client says, okay, now I'm not going to pay you. That would be a different story. Well, that's a traditional breach, but mm -hmm. I mean, like, let's flip this to the kissing cousin of uh, tortious interference with prospective economic advantage mm -hmm. that the client gave Beskar to the Mandalorian as a down payment for his services. The Mandalorian goes out to perform those services and that's when the Mandalorian runs into IG-11 that has a kill order on the child. And we find out that there, you know, in episode two, there are other bounty hunters who are uh, actively trying to kill the child that the Mandalorian has to fight off. That's damage. I mean, like the, he had the child in his custody other bounty hunters are trying to kill said child mm -hmm. and the and the Mandalorian has to fight them off in order to preserve his life in addition to preserve the child's life. You know, I that sounds like, it, granted, it's, it's extreme and th these mm -hmm. contracts would be void on public, ballot, uh, public policy grounds, but, you know, that's, you know, interference with a prospective economic advantage because he's in the middle of performing and these other contractors are running around trying to kill uh, the child. Mm -hmm. Don't hire IG-11 to, to try to find your dog if it becomes lost. I feel like that yeah. could go south very, very fast. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how you specify the terms that's where josh you you keyed in on that's where i think the the rub comes from the mandalorian's perspective because it's it's not that he collects the child and then it's over you know he's he's won he he's fulfilled his contractual obligation and these other bounty hunters go on to other jobs it's that whether by order of the client 
or just their own initiative, their own interpretation of these terms, they're going after him to try to snake the score right out from under him. And I think that's the problem. One thing I thought of what was if you turn the tables and, and I don't want to jump too far ahead in the episode, but when uh, the Mandalorian decides to come back for the child and retake him from the client, whether he's now committing the exact thing that he'd be arguing for, whether he's committing uh, this sort of tortious interference. Yeah, it's the contract's been performed. So I think it's a completely different issue. And that, that raises, you know, I think what I think is probably the next issue with this is when does bounty hunting become human trafficking? Because bounty hunting is about like bail bondsmen bringing in a fugitive. Well, the child's an infant. He's a 50-year-old infant, but it's not like an infant jumped bail. So like that's the problem right out of the gate that this is full-on, it's either murder for hire when it comes to just kill the kid or it's human trafficking because the child did nothing other than be alive. So it's not like there's a wrongful conduct that the kid was out on bail and as an infant jumped bail and is still an infant as a bail escapee. Uh, that, that just seems, you know, it's no longer in the realm of pure bounty hunting. It's now in the form of human trafficking to give the child to the space Nazis so they can perform experiments upon him, which would arguably be the Joseph Mingala war crime quality uh, experiment. And that that's all bad <laughs> from just like a public policy. Like there's no enforceable contract for human trafficking. I, I'm just for one glad that this may be the Imperial remnant, but they're still just as good at real dastardly stuff. I mean, they've lost no step in their ability to commit atrocities. Uh, so that's good that they've retained that ability. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think so, this was not something that I noticed initially, but it was pointed out that Dr. Pershing, the scientist that the client is working with, wears the uniform and the shoulder insignia of the Kaminoan cloners. We don't know where this is going. You, you overhear the client tell him, you know, extract what you need. Uh, I can't guarantee your safety anymore. So presumably while he's, when you look at the, the definition of human trafficking, we're talking just traditionally slavery of some type services uh, where you're not getting compensated. But I would, I would argue that this impliedly falls into it that that you know trafficking a, trafficking a child so that you can harvest whatever it is, midi chlorians, uh, whatever they need um, to to from this baby Yoda. That's going to fall squarely within the definition there. Uh, Gabby, your thoughts? Yeah, I I don't know if you know I was kind of stuck on on the line between kidnapping. Um, because obviously he's, the Mandalorian is clearly taking away the child um, against his will. If he has a will, he doesn't, ha you know, he doesn't have the capacity to object uh, to his being taken. Um, Look, he's and 50 years old. He's an adult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he, you know, and it, it was for some monetary gain that he took him against, or he seized him against his will. 
Um, but if it rises to the level of trafficking, um, I, I would have to, you know, to Thomas's point, see what they were doing, you know, get more information as to what they plan to do with the child. And like, you know, what the simple act of, of just seizing doesn't to me seem to rise to the level of human trafficking. You know, there has to be some sort of extra step as far as, you know, labor trafficking or sex trafficking or, or anything like that, that, that there's some work being done or something being done by the individual who's being kind of trafficked, who's being used in all sense as a, um, as a tool, as a, as a, as a tool to get something, whether that's, you know, labor or whether that's, you know, the monetary gain from sex trafficking, you know, it's, there's a lot of involved in that. So I, I, I'm a little hesitant to put the label of trafficking on that, but uh, that's somewhere between kidnapping and trafficking. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm not. Uh, you know, look, looking at California Penal Code uh, 236.1, one of the definitions is a person who deprives or violates the personal liberty of another with the intent to affect or maintain a violation in a whole bunch of, uh, you know, code sections is guilty of trafficking and shall be punished by imprisonment in state prison and all, all that good stuff. Uh, medical experimentation de deprives the child's personal liberty. And because the child's not consenting to that and there's no parent or guardian consenting to that, they're, they're doing experiments on a child. Mm -hmm. And like my, my read and what I would argue is that's the child's personal liberty and it's being grossly violated for you know, Dr. Pershing to extract whatever material they want from the child and whether or not the child survives the process. I, I would call that human trafficking. There, I, I think the twist that's coming is, is not that they're trying to get midichlorians or anything force related. He's trying to extract whatever gene made him that adorable in the first place <laughs> and create a master race of just really cute Imperials that nobody, nobody wants to fight. They're just like, okay, well you can take us over again. That's, that's okay. We'll be ruled by you if you're that adorable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, one thing I was thinking he comes in, we, we don't know how this child got to Arvala 7 and got into that compound with all those uh, ruffians. We do know that, so, so the Mandalorian was not in on that first link of the chain, presumably the, the, the actual kidnapping. Just because he comes in downstream doesn't mean that he's, you know, if he meets the other elements, any less guilty. So, you know, modern or, or real life, child trafficking, the guy that's uh, driving the boat that all the uh, human slaves or, or children are on is no less guilty than the person that uh, took them or, or tricked them into this position in the very first place. So all those links in the chain uh, from start to finish would be equally criminally liable. Yeah, uh, it's also interesting when we, we actually get to the liberation uh, that what exactly is Dr. Pershing? He's the only one that refers to the child as he, that- And know, the child. Which, he, as he the child. Yeah. Everyone else, you know, the Mandalorian to the client refers to Baby Yoda as it. Mm -hmm. 
which you know you know takes away humanity from you know which makes it easier to perpetrate a crime you know to to not value the life uh of the child and now granted you know the mandalorian does you know as part of the character arc you know he does go from it to you know referring to you know the child as the child or the kid mm -hmm. and which again is again i think just part of the beautiful star wars arc uh that that makes this star wars of you know like the guy growing the conscience and um you know up until the you know the grinch moment of the mandalorian's heart grew three times that day and he decides <laughs> to <laughs> he looks at the little ball and he's just like oh i have just... to go rescue him yeah and it, again the visual storytelling of you know like he's suiting up you know firing everything up and just reaching for the handle and seeing that the ball is gone from the top of the handle and just i mean it's such a powerful scene of he stops and the you we, can't see his face so it's all body language of like nope not doing this powers down and i'm gonna go take on a whole bunch of armed stormtroopers and go save a kid yeah that's everything star wars yeah i mean if, if pedro pascal does not win an emmy for this performance <laughs> there's something really wrong i mean he has a mask on like a full-on mask and yet we understand everything he's saying so He'll have won the Emmy for reading all of one page of dialogue in eight episodes, and that'll set a new record. <laughs> it, it, it was like, you know, nominating Tom Hanks for Castaway. It's like he, he, he had to act against a volleyball and a fake whale. Like, and you felt it. It's yeah. daring the Academy not to nominate him. So, again, same, same issue with The Mandalorian of... Uh, everyone's going to cry over a puppet and <laughs> even Werner Herzog cried over a puppet so a man who's never seen Star Wars before apparently is <laughs> obsessed with the puppet and treats it like a child so. yeah yeah the fact that that was it the Vanity Fair article that talked about him interacting with it on set like it was alive alive it's I, I, I just want that. video of that. I really do. I really want video. <laughs> it's just—it's like the fact he's playing the bad guy, and he, and it's like, yeah, I, I couldn't handle it. You know, it's just—that's <laughs> the power of that prop. He's out there putting <laughs> bounties in real life on anybody that's trying to take the <laughs> pup, the puppet away from him. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> just, oh, just watching watching him speak is just such a delight. Well, well, that, you know, brings us to the, uh, <laughs> what was it, one of the best protracted fight scenes in Star Wars lore of, you know, the raid of the Imperial compound and, and then the shootout with the other bounty hunters. And, you know, the analysis for both will be different, which is, which is why I, I want to highlight, we have to handle it in two different segments. But damn, that was beautiful. The, the fight, fights, plural, and uh, just, nope, going to go save the kid. But let's talk about the duty to rescue. So under you know, normal law, there's no duty to go out and help. Like if you see somebody drowning, 
you don't have to go swim out and save them. Uh, not doing anything makes you a horrible person, but you're not legally liable for that. Now, if you start to swim out or you, and you get the person, you start towing them back and go like, God, this is, you know, like I got a dental appointment and you let go and, you know, swim back in. Yeah, then you're liable. So mm -hmm. in addition to being a bad human being, those in mind, there's no general duty to go out and rescue unless there's a special relationship. Gabby, you did a little research on this. Yeah, can you share some of your thoughts on it? Yeah, I remember um, having to memorize these in, um, in torts uh, first year. So again, we use the example and, and you probably use it a lot is, is the, this person drowning um, offshore. And so obviously anybody who's a parent um, has to go rescue that. And also the key asterisk to that is a parent or somebody acting in loco parentis. So babysitters, teachers all have a duty to rescue. Uh, common carriers, employers, uh, invitees or persons on your property, spouses. But the interesting thing I think we can debate is whether the Mandalorian is in that kind of loco parentis role or if, because the, there's another exception that is if you created the hazardous situation, so, you know, you threw the person into the water um, and you don't go rescue them or if you prevent others from rescuing. So say somebody's drowning and you say, oh no, I got it. Nobody else has to go in the water. I can rescue this person. If you then go in the water and say, you know, no, I decided not to do it, then you're on the hook for preventing others from doing the rescuing. So I think we're in a kind of situation where the Mandalorian either is in local parentis or has put the child in this hazardous situation and now he's like, oh crap, I have to, this wasn't a great idea, I have to go rescue him. Well done. Yeah, it's just, again, when you realize I, I gave the kid to Imperials, he has that, you know, crisis moment seeing the other Mandalorians who said, like, you share a table with, with those who did this to us. And I mean, like, all of that had to be, like, sinking in slowly of, like, crap, 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 crap. What have I done? Uh, and then he sees the bassinet in the trash can. And it's done. It's over. I'm putting a bomb on this wall. <laughs> I'm destroying property. I'm getting that kid like come hell or high water. It's 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 really the the bassinet in the garbage dump that just abandoned and dirty and very sad that just throws him over the edge. It's it's well, I think it was already committed, but yeah, it's like nope. I'm going to hurt all of you. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's uh, uh, you guys are stormtroopers to begin with, probably war criminals. <laughs> I'm fine with this. <laughs> so, uh, which, which then brings, brings in the issue of uh, defense of others, form of self-defense. A great analogy for that is back to the future. George punching Biff, saving Elaine from sexual assault, proper defense of others, of, hey, you, you leave her alone. That's, that's like a quintessential example of that. This is different because he's having his crisis moment of like, what have I done to, 
using his scope that's apparently infrared and can get audio so he can hear what you know you know the the exchange between the client and dr uh, Pershing, Pershing that's all um, goes to I think to the totality of like realizing the kids in, in life-threatening danger and and to go in guns blazing um, I mean, I wouldn't have a problem defending him because I think morally it was the right thing to do. Uh, it might be pushing the defense of others doctrine uh, in a really, really far situation that mm -hmm. we don't see in real life. Uh, but that's why this is Star Wars. Yeah, and I, I think it goes back to the idea of how do you categorize the Mandalorian's relationship with the child? You know, mm -hmm. has he kind of shifted into a parental you know, responsibility for this kid's welfare role, as opposed to just to kind of a stranger or, you know, a third party, you know, does he have some sort of responsibility and duty to this child as in sort of that loco parentis way uh, that he didn't before? And I think that's where you kind of shift in, into a stronger defense of others argument versus a less stronger defense of others argument. Um, it was... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, it was on the Sky Talkers podcast where they mentioned um, somebody on Twitter referred to the Mandalorian as the Mandadadalorian. And <laughs> I was like, I don't know whoever did that, but God bless you. That does highlight the situation that, that this show has become. And I'm completely fine with it. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, if this was just about like mercenaries and hunting down, you know, bail jumpers, people would still tune in and, and watch it. But, you know, adding the save the kid from the bad guys element does give this the pure Star Wars feel of like, this is what happens in Star Wars. Yeah. We talked about before in a couple of the prior episodes, this notion that this, this type of contract is not normal and obviously probably wouldn't be legal given the subject matter and whatnot. I think that puts him going into this episode into a, uh, a legal position where that duty to rescue is going to be tripped if the circumstances are right, because he's accepted a contract that's obviously outside the bounds of probably what the guild typically allows for, which is why there's, nothing in writing there's no track nothing other than a tracking fob they've got it's basically off the books and he is rapidly coming to suspect up leading up to the beginning of this episode that something is nefarious that, that's going on here i mean you got a lot of a lot of folks who are just trying to kill not just capture this child and then he asks he breaks kind of an important tenet of the bounty hunting code and asks about the nature of the job or the what their intent is with the child and gets confronted about it. And I would argue at that moment, even though he's turning this, this kid over to folks that he knows are, are probably bad news, it's not tripped then, but certainly when he takes Josh or Gabby, I, one of you mentioned his infrared scope. When he overhears that conversation about extraction I think that's where his legal duty gets tripped because there he's got the uh, you know pretty plain evidence that something is going to happen to this kid that's uh, putting him in danger. And uh, you know, fortunately for him, he takes the right action and jumps immediately 
in to do things. And when it comes to, to rescuing the child, once he's actually in the building, when the kid has an interrogation droid floating right above him with a needle or some sort of uh, dastardly tool ready to go, and he destroys that, and I think he takes the he uses the right amount of restraint because what does he do with Doctor Pershing? He shoves him to the side, probably because it's a plot device, and we need him later to, to find out more. But he shoves him to the side. There's no need to kill Doctor Pershing, and so he shows some restraint in his force. And the other folks that get killed in that building are all stormtroopers that are trying to to hurt him and hurt the child. So he, whether they knew this or not, they make it nice and clean. Yeah. yeah, I would add with Dr. Pershing, which was also why, you know, the Mandalorian let him live, was uh, the doctor was shielding the child with his own yeah. body saying, get away from him. He's just a child. So willing to lay down his life for the kid was and like, not a threat. Yeah, and not a threat. So like, I, I like that can't be forgotten of maybe this guy isn't totally bad. Like is, did he just make a bad life choice on who to work for? And it's like, in this in too deep now, like, like maybe we'll find out, but, um, and, and maybe the thing is too, I, I thought about this when we were talking about trafficking, maybe Dr. Pershing himself is being, you know, is a victim of, of labor trafficking, you know, because he, um, at one point when um, the Mandalorian is listening to their conversation, the client tells him, I can't guarantee your safety anymore. So mm -hmm. he's clearly doing all this with, if not a literal gun to his head, with a very kind of, you know, meta metaphorical gun to his head. And, you know, he, he says, you know, that he's there to protect the child. He didn't want to hurt him. Um, so he seems very forced to do this. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting, you know, as you were saying, Thomas, a lot of the Mandalorian's actions throughout that entire raid of the Imperial complex, he uses equal force. He only uses the stormtroopers that are trying to kill the child get killed. And Dr. Pershing, who is trying to protect the child, only gets you know shoved to the side to to kind of get him out of the way he doesn't get killed in in return which i think is is right on par with a good defense of others uh defense and the empire that you make a really good point because the empire is no stranger as we well know from rogue one to to using forced labor in the form of scientists and it's interesting i don't know what his connection is yet to to the kaminoans if there is one maybe he's just he found this cool shirt, this uniform. <laughs> He's just wearing it because he likes shades of gray. But uh, from what we've seen of the the Kaminoan uh, cloners, they're not mixing species. It's it's all sort of uniform at their cloning facilities. Uh, it it's staffed by Kaminoans. The doctors are Kaminoans. Uh, the only exception to that would be during the Clone Wars, where you see Jedi Shakti that manages. The, the clone training program and then some oddball bounty hunters that come in to help. So this is something new. If, if he's somehow officially connected to their cloning program, I think you probably have hit the nail right on the head that he is maybe not quite fully voluntarily in this position. And in the first episode, when you see the client commission, the, the Mandalorian, he argues back, he says, no, our understanding was that this, this package would be brought back alive, not dead. So unclear who he's answering to, but he may be trafficked. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, Thomas, putting on your, your army hat, 
and thinking of you know, street street fighting, raiding a building to recover you know somebody who's you know taken prisoner. Like, what was your reaction to to watching the Mandalorian just go in and light the whoop lamp of like shooting guys, like stabbing guys, guy who's down shoots him just to be sure. Flame throwing guys. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, just watch this, like, damn, and I and I loved every second of it, and then the whistling birds. It's like, okay, so it's nice to know what that is, and um, good, good, quick foreshadowing. Didn't didn't have to wait long to see what they looked like. What what was your you know thoughts from like your the army, you know, experience perspective of of the one man raid? killing at least nine, eight or nine stormtroopers. Mm-hmm. I mean, tactically, if he's going for pure, uh, a pure stealth, pure uh, covertness, I think he leaves a little bit to, de- to be desired. Um, Flamethrowing a guy and, and having him scream out <laughs> as, he, as he gets burned to a crisp is not the most subtle way to go about it. But I think it's perfectly matched for this scene because like, He's going in furious. He's angry, and it shows through. This is not – he's not thinking as clearly as he probably is on a standard bounty job. And that's what I love about this scene. It's just like visual poetry as he moves through because uh, you see sort of like this level of softness in everything that he's doing. Even even Dr. Pershing, he's just like this like little guy – clearly not trying to hurt the kid himself and he just shoves him like throws him into the corner yeah i, I thought it was perfectly matched to, to what his emotions were as he goes in there gun pointed at him like what did you do yeah. <laughs> and the, the whistling birds that was like when he got those i was like oh man I hope we don't have to wait like two episodes before he has a chance to use that <laughs> and deborah chow said i got you thomas <laughs> You wait about five minutes and it's going to come up. And I went back. This is how, like how ridiculous I am. I went back as I said, man, I hope that's not, those weren't all of his rounds. Like I hope he's got some more left in the tank. And I think he does. I think he's got a few spare ones that he didn't fire off. So and he, if you're out might, there, I hope <laughs> let's see yeah. so the rest of those get used. And, and the uh, forger might have made some more for him to reload. Like, so what's in the gauntlet True. might not be, you know, the, the full uh, uh, magazine count. Mm-hmm. So I like uh, that he, and maybe this is a, a legal issue for uh, separate, but he, he reserved a number of those whistling birds for the foundlings, presumably the little kid, you know, the small Mandalorians. I think it's like the the Mandalorian equivalent of lawn darts. <laughs> well, if if younglings got to use lightsabers, which again screams child hazard right right out of the gate, is it that much of a stretch to give you know foundlings whistling birds? I mean, they're. I mean, they seem a little more controlled than a lightsaber because they seem That's to true. go exactly where, like a boomerang, that they go where they're supposed to go. Um, you know, so they seem a little bit more controlled than a child with a lightsaber. So I, I definitely trust a kid with whistling birds more than I would a lightsaber. Yeah. So the raid's completed and they're making their break for it and all the tracking fobs go off uh, for all the bounty hunters to now, I, again, in my view, 
they're now acting as mercenaries to go out and kill the kid. So that's not bounty hunting. That's murder for hire. So there's that. Gabby, reaction to the fobs going off. Oh my God, when, the, when all the fobs, because I, I already <laughs> took issue when, when it was clear that more than one person had the fob. And I was like, how many people can track this, this child? Like, where is the, the whatever's controlling the fob? And then when you see the amount of fobs that have been passed out in this one little cantina, I was just, the, the privacy nerd in me just like went nuts because I was like, really? really? Like, what is, you know, I wanted some, you know, ACLU lawyer to just like bust <laughs> in there and just be like, no, this isn't happening. We're not like allowing a child to be tracked with these little beeping devices. We don't know how they're being tracked. You know, it's just, it, and, it, and what I think is interesting and what we saw in this particular episode, because in, in the previous episodes, we knew that the FOB kind of tracked the, the, pers- the individual's general location, right? Like it, it tracked the, the blue individual to the bar it tracked the child to that uh, compound and, you know, kind of further into the compound. Um, but I think what this really showed was that it can detect like down to the, there's no kind of radius right around where the fob is detecting. This thing is pinpoint accurate as to where the individual is. So I think that raises a heightened privacy concern um, that it's not just giving the general location of the person, but that it's actually the pinpoint accuracy where this person is at all times, which is not cool. To that point, there was speculation. Uh, I don't know if we brought it up, but I've seen a, uh, a thought that this code sequence that was mentioned, this code string uh, that the client and Mandalorian discussed in the first episode uh, is somehow a DNA tied to somebody's DNA sequence and that, um, or some really personally identifiable information. That's why he only has chain code is the phrase I'm looking for that. He only had the last few digits of the chain code, which related to his age. Um, yeah. and I think Gabby, you might've made this point in the first recording that this could be akin to like a social security number or something that's just yeah. floating out there. Cause and- clearly I think if the Mandalore, if this was a physical device that was like, a little tiny adorable ankle bracelet around uh, the child, he would have removed it. I mean, he's a professional, right? Yeah. Uh, it's got to be something more than that, something that he can't get at. Easily. Well, and I think, I think what's interesting too that, that we're kind of learning about it is it's something that can be, the alert can be turned on and off, right? Because yeah. clearly this alert went off, um, you know, went dead when the Mandalorian turned the, ba- the bounty in, turned the child to the client. The, all the fobs went off. The fobs were activated again once, not once he took him from, you know, the MRI machine type device, but once he stepped out of the compound, right? So it, it was like leaving the compound triggered the device. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how, who's controlling when it gets triggered, when it gets shut off, who controls that? How is it controlled? There's just, there's a lot of privacy issues. <laughs> yeah, and, and I interpreted that differently with the fobs going off. I, my feeling was it was an off-screen account of 
you know, Dr. Pershing talking to the client and, you know, thus them mm -hmm. getting reactivated. Uh, but uh, that is an interesting idea if it activated because the kid left the compound. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, I, I don't know what the right answer is, but yeah, I, I interpreted that very differently. Yeah, and it would not be beyond the, the realm of plausibility for, because if you think most of his clients, most of his targets, bounties, are bail jumpers. Mm -hmm. Presumably they're folks that were at least processed initially through the, the you know, criminal justice system in the galaxy. They probably gave a DNA sample as part of that. So theoretically there's an available full chain code for the authorities to use or bounty hunters for that matter. Possibly this child had one, uh, had that process done sort of extrajudicially, extra if I can speak right. And then, you know, the client or whoever, you know, hacked isn't the right word for Star Wars. I guess it would be sliced, but sliced and was able to get just a partial sequence number out of this chain code. Uh, and that's how they're tracking this kid. So there's a lot to unwind here. Yeah, yeah uh, good points. And I don't know if we'll get answers. Uh, but it does bring us to, you know, the uh, the exceptionally well done street fight. That is it Western? Is it like 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 what you, we could have seen, you know, during the war in Iraq? Like you know, the street to street fight of you know one man taking on you know a small army to protect a kid. Uh, which again, I didn't realize it was everything I wanted in Star Wars. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> of uh, uh, again, just so much there. But I, I do think this is different than the raid because the raid mm -hmm. was to go save the kid, and now he's being you know uh, confronted by bounty hunters who you know look like they're ready to shoot to kill, uh, which raises self-defense, and. Um, you know, either of you, you know, wh whoever wants to jump in first, but you know, I, I think the bounty hunter is completely, you know, excuse me, the Mandalorian is acting in complete self-defense mm -hmm. uh, in the scene to, you know, protect himself and the child from the other bounty hunters who are there uh, in a murder for hire capacity. Yeah, they grief makes it completely clear. And I should say from the outset, if this wasn't the uh, the purest version of a Star Wars Wild West shootout. I mean, you've got shooters up on top of the buildings, uh, like in every Western ever. You've got folks in little alleyways. You've got a wagon in that <laughs> in that speeder. I mean, it's all there, right? So, uh, grief makes it explicitly clear what's going to happen to him if he doesn't knuckle under and give him exactly what he wants, because he tells the Mandalorian, you know. Mandalorian says, I'm going to go to my ship and, and leave with the child and you guys aren't going to do anything. And grief's response is, how about you get out of the way? Otherwise we're going to strip you for parts, <laughs> which is not the, the, I guess, least thinly veiled death threat, but pretty damn close, I guess. Um, and so just because the Mandalorian fires the first shot doesn't mean that he's, uh, he's out of his ability to use self or rely on self-defense here. Yeah. I would say he's not the aggressor in this scene. The self-defense uh, applies because they're, they've all showed up in force to kill him. Like this is, 
this is, you know, the Mos Eisley Cantina, Han versus Guido, you know, turned up to 25. <laughs> and uh, that we're, it's a radically, you know, intense situation of they're there to kill him and he's surrounded. And uh, it's like, again, it's, it's just so well done. You know, there, there are some, you know, um, issues when it comes to self-defense law. Uh, and I pulled some California uh, case holdings that self-defense um, you know, uh, may not be invoked by someone through their own wrongful conduct um, has created circumstances under which his an uh, adversary attacks or pursuits is legally justified. And my view is saving the child from the Imperials, that, that was... Uh, justified conduct to, to save the kid's life. The bounty hunters are acting in a murder-for-hire capacity to kill him in order to get the kid, if not kill the kid uh, themselves. That's murder-for-hire. So, like, there's there's no uh, justification for that. So, the Mandalorian didn't create the situation because they were hired to kill um, so I, I think, again, I do think all of his actions with <clears throat> all the bounty hunters, he, he either disintegrates or shoots or <laughs> burns. Uh, he might have stabbed one. I, I lost count. Uh, he came close to batting for the cycle. I don't know. <laughs> Killing for the cycle, I guess it would be. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like so well done and and then the cavalry shows up uh, again, adding to the Western theme. <laughs> that, yeah. uh, but before the cavalry gets there, there's um, an issue with carjacking, and and the issue of, <laughs> you know, can you carjack an autonomous vehicle? Because he jumps in the speeder, the wagon, and points his blaster at the at the R two unit, and says drive, and the droid clearly squeaks that he's like not happy with the situation <laughs> but drives so he doesn't get blasted can you carjack an autonomous vehicle and uh, gabby do, do you want to take the wheel on this one ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um no pun intended um it so yeah so it, it becomes whether if it's a carjacking do we consider the droid to be the possessor of the vehicle and is this like you know, in typical Western fashion, is this like the dude on the cart, you know, on his horse with a cart attached and, you know, the cowboy jumps in and says, you know, drive. And, or is this more like the speeder that we saw in episode one, um, where the speeder and the droid were one and the same. And so this is more of an autonomous vehicle that's kind of just operating on its own that may ne necessarily have a possessor um, so, you know, I think it would be, um, it, it would be a matter of whether the droid is considered the possessor of the vehicle, whether it rises to a criminal, um, liability situation, or whether this is just kind of a trespass to chattels, um, type of tort, um, because he doesn't take it for long, um, and he wasn't going to take it for long, regardless of whether it got shot or not, he was just going to take it to get out to get to his vehicle. He wasn't, you know, going to take it because part of carjacking is to permanently deprive um, and, you know, to, to, to wrongfully take something away to permanently deprive the owner. 
And I, I think he doesn't intend to do that at all. He just wants to get out. It's kind of necessity. That's his only way out. Um, so I think it, it comes down to how you consider the droid in this situation. Excellent. Well, th that leads right to the issue of the, the trolley problem with droids. <laughs> uh, for, for those who aren't familiar with, with this concept, uh, you know, issue and tort, and again, it's imagine uh, a trolley, you know, like a cable car, San Francisco, and it's, you know, careening down the hill because the brake went out. And the only way to, you know, stop the, you know, this, this speeding trolley is, you know, you either throw a passenger out to, you know, act as the brake, so the passenger's <laughs> killed, but the trolley stop, or, you know, you, you pull a gun and, and shoot a pedestrian who's crossing the street to use their body as a brake. And uh, in, in our situation, we have, you know, Griff, you know, the great Carl Weathers, and God, I'm so happy to hear his voice and see him because he's always Apollo to me. And he shoots the droid who, who is a full R2 unit. So, you know, it's, he's a full R2 unit at the, at the front of the vehicle. So he, he's different than, you know, the built-in droid that we saw in the first episode. Uh, but he shoots the droid in order to stop the, the speeder. And the little guy screams when he gets shot. Let's break that down. Thomas, Thomas, do you want to go first with this? <laughs> I think it's based on the way grief was talking. It sounds like either this is his, his uh, speeder or wagon, whatever we're going to call it now, or he's hired this. So perhaps he's, he's situated a little bit differently. If, if it's his droid that he's shooting at, um, you know, I, I don't know that it was absolutely necessary. Could they have regrouped and without destroying the speeder and shooting this poor droid in the dome, just gone over it? They know where he's going. I mean, you know, they just need to get over there. And that speeder was not exactly moving at the speed of light. I mean, that thing, that may have been the slowest speeder in Star Wars that I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I don't know that it was strictly necessary to, to cook that poor droid, uh, but I wonder whether Grief was maybe differently situated than the average person on a trolley. I will say, by the way, uh, the trolley problem is a purely California problem. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> when I studied in North, towards in North Carolina, uh, the, uh, the, the problem of runaway trolleys was <laughs> non-existent. It's not an East Coast thing at all. Like this is... <laughs> This is all you, California. This is, this is your you. weird California <laughs> outer rim law, Josh. Yeah, it's the fact you guys live in flat states where you don't have trolleys. Well, fine. Uh, It'd be like the, the, I guess the closest we would have would be like the, the farm combine problem. If you're threshing <laughs> your corn and the brakes on the combine go out, can you shoot the cow <laughs> to stop the thing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, we don't have hush puppies here, so you, know, you just own that. Um, well, let's uh, let, let's move away from the necessity defense to uh, the the issue of of the Mandalorians. And um, you know, Gabby, why don't you take take point on this because you you did a lot of research on you know are or is the Mandalorian covert? They get refugee status. Yeah. So I think it would, it, they, they do, I would say they would get refugee status. Um, we would have to determine 
what their fear of persecution is, you know, is they kind of have this ambiguous fear of persecution, you know, they, they talk um, about how, um, you know, their survival is, is their secrecy and, and, you know, um, and them staying kind of under the radar. And obviously now their cover's blown because they've all flown to go save the Mandalorian. So, you know, what is this fear that they have is, is the question of, obviously that's when you're seeking refugee status or seeking asylum, that's the big hurdle to overcome is imminent fear of persecution. Um, so, and the other question would, would be where would they seek refugee status? Cause they're, they're a covert. It's not necessarily all of the Mandalorian. So it's not talking about a huge displaced population like the Rohingya, which are now stateless individuals uh, through no fault of their own. You know, it's not a whole people, it's just a group of this particular ethno-linguistic cultural group. Um, so where would they seek refugee status? What, how would they prove their imminent fear of persecution? Um, and, you know, where would they go? Or are they just kind of a break off of, you know, is, is, is the fear specific to them? Is it specific to all Mandalorians? Um, you know, that's kind of the issue there. Yeah, we don't know. We haven't seen enough of backstory on the purge, as it were, to know who perpetrated it and mm -hmm. to what extent it fractured the Mandalorian society. Clearly, the context that's been laid out so far is that this this really destroyed, you know, what we previously knew of Mandalore from the Clone Wars. Um, you know, certainly they they had a, a very robust population, if not one that was a bit uh, internally fractured over disagreements in, in sort of how the, the their future was going to look. But based on the argument that this disagreement that happens between the heavy Mandalorian or the heavy infantry Mandalorian. I don't think he's been given a name yet. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, it's a he's a a Visla. A so, Visla. Oh. Yeah. So, so, Do we, so okay. So, so John Favreau voiced him, and they announced that there's a black series action figure coming out uh, very soon. So mm -hmm. yeah. So and, and the the figure looks freaking beautiful. So it's I don't know if it's a child of pre Visla, but it's a Visla. Okay. Yeah. Well, he, so that, that is a big clan. And so, yeah, I mean, we presumably it's the Imperials that, perp I mean, that's makes the most sense, right? That the Imperials perpetrated the great purge, yeah. but to Gabby's point, what's their fear, right? The, the mm -hmm. empire is gone. They've been gone for some time now. Why can they only go above ground one at a time? Who's still persecuting them? Is there still, is there still a bounty on Mandalorians? I mean, if are, are folks able to profit, if they bring in a, a, a you know, a, a true, true-blooded Mandalorian, you know, dead or alive to, to some authority, um, you know, what's feeding this fear? Because it's, what's really fascinating to me is that this is a, a race full of badasses, right? This is not some, you know, very persecuted race that's uh, uh, weak and, and has been cast out in the galaxy. I mean, these folks are warriors at their core. You see that in this episode. It's got to be something pretty darn significant for them to be underground like sand rats, mm -hmm. as, uh, as they're described. 
Yeah, and and I think also, you know, as as many um, as many immigration lawyers will tell you, especially with regards to the U.S. system of uh, seeking asylum, you have to overcome such a high bar with that that proving the imminent fear of persecution because you can't just say oh, the conditions in my home country are bad, you know, oh, there's violence, oh, there's this, oh, there's X, you know, you have to specifically demonstrate, which is why it's such a huge hurdle to overcome, is you have to demonstrate that your particular life is in danger, that you face, you personally face persecution and will die if you are returned to your home country. So that's, why it would be interesting to see what, because right now we just know that they fear persecution, right? We just know that they live underground like rats. They, you know, are now forced to move because they came out of hiding. Um, but we don't know what that specific thing is that's targeting all of them, you know, that's putting all of their lives in danger. Um, so, you know, that would, dem that's how they would have to demonstrate in order to get that refugee status. They don't have it just by virtue of being displaced, unfortunately. This raises so many issues because when we, uh, looking at, at Rebels and in the way that Star Wars Rebels ended, Sabrine, Sabine Wren was on Lothal, uh, waiting until Ahsoka showed up and they went off to go find Ezra. And there was like no hint that Mandalore had been ravaged in any way, but you know, like prior, you know, in Rebels, you know, there was the entire liberation with, um, uh, you know, Clan Wren, uh, another clans uniting, uh, uh, Sabine using the uh, dark uh, saber uh, to help unify folks. And ultimately after the rescue of her father, um, uh, Duchess Satine's sister, uh, Bogue, uh, was it uh, Katins, uh, was it Kriz? Uh, Katie Ser uh, Serikoff, voice the character has the dark saber and you know theoretically would have been in charge like what happened after that you know to return of the return of the jedi like was there i um, like did did the mandalore itself get hit hard like firebombed you know type type situation you know or nuclear weapons like what you know like or was it something else like that was economic in nature that shattered uh, the society? Because you know they were like moons and other planets within the system that had you know a robust uh, Mandalorian clans mm -hmm. at you know at strength. So what happened there? Um, the other thing that could have happened um, because as I was kind of doing research into this. Um, into the Mandalorian history, there's obviously sects of Mandalorians, and and you know they have a uh, a cultural linguistic um, commonality. But the way it's being portrayed in um, the Mandalorian is this almost religious type, um, you know, bond that you know they say this is the way, uh, and and that you know there's all of all of this kind of religious. Um, tonality to their bond. So it's possible to imagine that maybe they're a religious sect within the Mandalorians that has been persecuted 
and that is now why they must flee because their particular religious ideology of the Mandalorian way of life is being threatened by maybe other Mandalorians or other um, individuals that that would be more specific to them. And obviously we've seen, you know, religious persecution in many, 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 many forms. Um, so that would be, you know, rather straightforward for them to kind of portray. They're like Orthodox Mandalorians, I guess. <laughs> Cause we've seen the death watch. I think it's a really good, it's a really interesting point. Cause mm -hmm. the, the Mandalore that we see in the clone wars is split between these traditionalists, this sect of the death watch that, um, you know, begins less as terrorists and just as folks that see themselves as like the pure, uh, the pure incantation of, of Mandalorians and they look upon uh, the quote unquote new Mandalorians, the, the peace loving folks who are trying to move away from this warrior past as sort of a bastardization of what Mandalore has always stood for. So I think that's an absolute possibility that we're not seeing maybe Mandalorians writ large, but maybe this uh, a, a sect of folks. Yeah, good questions. Uh, we did get a little bit more with the flashback to the Clone Wars where, you know, the Mandalorian was a child. And we, we do see his parents toss him into a cellar that looked more like a bunker because there was at least, you know, a cushioned like, couch for him to sit in. And, you know, the, the last shot of the flashback was the, the hatch opening up and a super battle droid standing over him. And uh, again, the, the editing cut of the armor being, sh you know, smelted and forged was, was a nice uh, you know, way to like, you know, like shatter what happened. But um, I, I think in a future, I mean, clearly in a future episode, we'll, we'll see, you know, how the child, that child survived the super battle droid. But I, and like my gut, this is pure speculation. It's dangerous for fans to do this because something else can happen <laughs> instead. I mean, like, you know, the easy answer is like some Mandalorians save him. Like that's, that's the easy answer of, you know, he's saved by Mandalorians who, you know, blow up the super battle droids. That would make sense. Something else that would like be the ultimate tease for Favreau and Filoni to do, and especially if they do this in the ep next episode that uh, uh, um, Filoni directs, is if this is the first time we see like a, a live action Ahsoka, um, uh, you know, slice and dice a super battle droid uh, and just have it be real quick, you know. So she like, was there. I mean, if this if that's a depiction of the Siege of Mandalore, she was there. So it's, would, it's entirely possible. I think Star Wars Twitter would like implode and it'd be like the second big bang <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then explode all at once in an instant. If, if people lost their minds with baby Yoda, yeah. imagine a live action um, Ahsoka. Even just a know, glimpse. A glimpse. It, like it, yeah. it doesn't have to be much. It just has to be the quick glimpse of her slicing that droid down and and there would be much rejoicing and <laughs> that, that might be the only way that they could top the baby yoda reveal yeah yeah uh, but i think to your point um josh i think they're definitely going to be rescued or adopted um you know this this flashback orphan if you will if he is the mandalorian because you know star wars can definitely 
take this in a, in a different direction. And it turns out it's not the Mandalorian. Um, you know, maybe this was the child he couldn't save, right? And and then the um, baby Yoda is now his kind of redeeming, um, his second chance, if you will. But it would fit with the Mandalorian history. Uh, one thing I found that was interesting is that they're very unconcerned with biological lineage because they because they're a war um, mongering culture, and you know they're constantly in battle. There's a lot of widows and orphans. And so the idea of adopting um, individuals is not uncommon, is actually extremely common in the Mandalorian culture in the extended universe. And it was not, according to um, Wikipedia, it was not uncommon for soldiers to take war orphans as sons or daughters. And in fact, the adoption ritual for Mandalorians was really simple. It, all they had to do was say to the intended child, I know your name is my child. Um, and that was all it took to make an individual a Mandalorian. Um, so I think we'll see that whatever that child in the flashback happens to be, whether that's the child that couldn't be saved or whether that's the Mandalorian himself, clearly these adopted individuals become foundlings because the foundlings are clearly important to the Mandalorian and are clearly important to this particular covert. Um, but I think you're gonna see some sort of, you know, parallel adoption taking place, um, both with Baby Yoda and whatever's happening in these flashbacks. Well, well it's in the name foundling, yeah. found. So mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> I was a foundling, okay, so, Mandalorians found him. Now, mm -hmm. now, granted, he could have been a citizen on Mandalore, or that that after you know from the peace hippie part of the culture that that are wiped out during uh, the siege of Mandalore, and it's somebody from Death Watch or another similar set that adopts him, and uh, that again that seems completely reasonable. Um, I, I just, I know we'll find out within five episodes of, <laughs> of what the answer is. Uh, but yeah, that, that makes sense on what the foundlings are because they're found. They're not necessarily born into the mm -hmm. clan. They're war orphans that are adopted, which does raise interesting cultural questions with, um, this, uh, combat focused like religious view that has high compassion for war orphans and adopts children that mm. does give them depth and it, it's again it's the beautiful thing about having a weekly series that you can explore versus a two-hour movie where everything has to be tight and wrapped up in two hours so it's again perk of a tv series I will say that for this next episode coming right after Thanksgiving, I personally will be ingesting as much turkey as possible and therefore as much tryptophan as possible so I can pass out immediately, wake up after midnight, rested, having fallen asleep probably at 2 p.m., and then promptly watch The Mandalorian again. <laughs> it's like you did nothing wrong. It's, <laughs> it's all just coming together. It's one beautiful plan. This is the way. This is, this the, is way. the way. This is the way. <laughs>
Uh, let's see. Now, the other news is, you know, there will be Baby Yoda merchandise coming out soon. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it, apparently in time for Christmas. So, um, Disney that is, has an inside look to my wallet. They know exactly <laughs> how it operates. They know exactly how to get the money out of my wallet. Like just little, you know, Disney-fied wings on my my cash. <laughs> I'm sure when they were like scoping out the show and release release date and going like, okay, we can't release the toys out of the gate for baby Yoda because it's a spoiler and we're going to do what the showrunner says. But on the flip side, we're going to have all the plans ready. So therefore there's like nothing that's that, you know, we, we can turn key and start production mm-hmm. and sell these babies and uh, make you know go make a billion dollars in baby yoda it's impressive because rarely i can't think of a time where a product reveal hasn't been sort of on the cutting edge of spoilers right whether it's a lego set revealing a character or something like that i mean it's it just happens it's really hard because of the internet to, to clamp all that stuff down but damn they must have had something strong to to keep word tight or the lips tight on this one well i think i well i think it was like you know i i think of the baby groot um kind of reveal the same way i mean yeah you didn't know that groot was gonna die and then baby groot was gonna pop up in the post credits so you know but they had that merchandise like right (laughs) like as soon as you know it was politically okay to start sharing you know the baby Groot dance gifts like they were selling merchandise for that so I I think they had that kind of tested and true and you know if we get a baby Groot and baby Yoda spinoff for little kids I will watch it (laughs) yeah yeah, I I could just see that meaning of like design the toy on paper nothing will be digital and if you use a computer it can't be connected to the internet so you get this commodore 64 make it happen and you got to print all this on dot matrix paper (laughs) (laughs) we're going to design the toy old school and because if it's analog it can't be hacked yeah uh like yeah and and some guy in in a Disney bunker <laughs> making it. It's ready. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> Behold. Uh, but yeah, the, they've, it's like, like no, I, I got a uh, uh, Razor Crest, you know, Hot Wheels, four ninety nine at Target, and it sits on the desk now, and, and I love it. Uh, keep, keep your Jawa toys away from it. I, I hear yeah. those two things might not mix. Well, and... Oh, go ahead. No, it's this is one of the few times I might take. I got a Mandalorian and Jawa Black series. I think I'll take them out of the boxes because I have the stands and put them in in my shelf, and just hold on to the boxes because they're that beautiful. And uh, and like they didn't release a, a Mandalorian figure with you know the new Beskar armor, so like that that will come out later. So. Mm-hmm. They, they've done a really good job of not spoiling things. Yeah. What I think is interesting, though, is that, you know, we, we obviously did not get the Baby Yoda reveal till the end of Chapter 1 release, but they've clearly released a lot of uh, merchandise and also uh, promo images for Cara Dune. 
-hmm. which is interesting that they've kind of, and obviously IG-11, but he was, you know, down and out in the first episode, but it's interesting that, you know, we're already at episode three and we haven't seen her character yet, which this is her lovely Funko Pop. (laughs) I will note that she has a rebel icon tattoo um, on her cheek. So that's, very interesting to see how that she was a former uh rebel shock trooper uh, Mm a special forces trooper so those ties run deep i suppose well that they and her black series figure comes out later so i I think i'm I'm not sure when i hope for christmas because they're (laughs) ideal gifts and uh do you think uh now this is uh gonna be the best kind of speculation but do you think that the mandalorian will play matchmaker and set his his friend mr vizsla up with cara dune because they seem like we haven't seen cara dune in action but they seem like they'd be a good match <laughs> uh you know Favreau, you totally expected this episode to go that direction i'm sure you know and in, in the marvel movies john Favreau's happy does go out with aunt may so <laughs> Anything sp- that that would throw him one hell of a bone. Of, yeah. um, it's like so. Your characters will get the girl for a change. Are you good with that? Um, they can bond writing- over big guns, yeah, big blasters. You're, you're writing the series, so if you write that in, and that just kind of <laughs> self-serving there, John. But uh, yeah, I I I don't know. I don't care. Uh, she's been delightful in interviews, and I, I can't wait to see her character on screen. And fun fact about Vizsla, he's actually played, I mean, he's voiced by Favreau, but he's actually played by the same dude who played the bar thug, the very big bar thug who scrapes ma- uh, the Mandalorian's armor. Oh, plays yeah. our Vizsla character. So um, very interesting change of roles there. It's it's also nice for the actor to go like, so you're, you're going to get more than a four minute scene. Uh, <laughs> You're going to get killed real quickly here, but we've got something else for you. And and you get to play a good guy. So (laughs) deal. So with a jetpack, with a jetpack. Yeah, there you go. That's the important feature. And and that also, (laughs) I mean, that also fits with Star Wars history. If you watch um, Estelle 77, uh, I believe it's still on Netflix that, you know, has all of the, the extras and they had different people like play stormtroopers who also were unmasked uh, playing different characters and different mm-hmm. scenes. And I, I think it was the guy who played like one of Luke's buddies uh, who ended up getting cut from the film, you know, is the stormtrooper who, you know, talks to Kenobi with like, just move along. So, you know, his, he, his cut scene, you know, wasn't, you know, was a bigger scene, but he ended up with something iconic instead. Uh, so highly recommend that. And again, that it fits tr- Star Wars tradition. Mm-hmm. So with that, uh, everyone, we will <laughs> stay tuned for written blog posts. Uh, mm-hmm. But because uh, again, this is, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for. And we will have an episode uh, after Thanksgiving, but uh, everyone have a very happy Uh, and save Thanksgiving. Thomas and Gabby, I know we'll be talking more. And uh, everyone, stay geeky. Stay geeky, America.